0: Welcome, fellow Crimatics, to our weekly CA meeting. I'm Kylie. And I'm Casey. Grab a cup of coffee and let's get our fix.
1: Welcome back, addicts. This week, we are spending some time with our elderly community, but not in the form of baking cookies with granny or playing chess in the park. This is still a true crime podcast, so there's that. We are sipping a super yummy iced raspberry mocha while we discuss these horrendous crimes. This week's we are shouting out Cody S., Kathleen V., and Tracy L., They have liked, commented, rated, shared, reviewed, or donated, so we want to thank you guys so much. We are so grateful for the support that you guys have been giving us with our podcast, and we love you guys so much. For your chance to get a shout-out on our next episode, please donate, like, follow, rate, review, or share across all social media platforms. You can find us at Crime Addicts Pod on iTunes, Twitter, Facebook, and IG, or on the World Wide Web at CrimeAddictsPodcast.com. On our website, Addicts, you will find a spot where you can submit case recommendations, find our delicious coffee recipes, and there's also a pretty cool donate button. And if you're an Amazon shopper like myself, go ahead and click our Amazon link. It will redirect you to the Amazon site or app. Simply add your items to your cart and check out. This process will help support our show, and it doesn't cost you anything extra.
0: February 22, 1991, the body of a 27-year-old, Lee Anthony Bougay III, was found in a mangrove near the Courtney Campbell Causeway in Tampa, Florida, by a man who had been sunbathing. Lee Bougay had been reported missing the previous morning, and injuries on his head indicated that he had been beaten to death with either a tire iron or a pipe. His vehicle was later found at a nearby boat ramp and investigators took plaster casts of footprints and tire tracks that were found near the crime scene in the hopes of finding clues that would let them catch the killer. Just hours after Lee Bouguet's body was found, authorities were notified that someone had purchased gasoline from a Texaco store using his credit card. Upon further investigation of this clue, they identified the man as Edwin Bernard Caprat III who by then had returned to New Jersey. In early March, after learning that an arrest warrant had been issued for him, Caprat called a detective in the Hackettstown Police Department in New Jersey and expressed his desire to turn himself in. On March 9th, Caprat surrendered himself to authorities, and soon after, he was extradited back to Florida to face charges of first-degree murder, armed robbery, and forgery.
1: Who is Edwin Bernard Kaprat III? He was born on September 21, 1964, in New York City, New York, and was one of two children born to refugee mechanic Edwin Skip Capratt Jr. and his wife Ruth, a real estate agent. The family moved to Great Meadows, New Jersey, when he was still young, and according to neighbors, they were considered to be upstanding citizens. Although described as intelligent and obsessed with reading books, Caprat, who was nicknamed Mike by his family members, was also known to be very violent and easily angered bully who would attack those weaker and smaller than him. Due to this, his teachers resorted to giving him plush toys so he could redirect his anger to them, punching and kicking them. He reportedly started drinking at age 12 and developed an addiction to alcohol, which landed him in juvenile treatment centers and juvenile courts on numerous occasions. After his 16th birthday, Kaprat dropped out of Hackettstown High School, and in November 1982, he married his pregnant girlfriend, Nora Niederhaus. Kaprat, who had two sons with Nora and was known to still drink and smoke marijuana. By that time, the Kaprat family had faced some strife. As the elder Kaprats divorced and their daughter, Ruthie, experienced marital problems with one of her husbands having threatened to torch her car. Despite his hot temper, Caprat was well-liked by his family and relatives and was noted for his interest in the Middle Ages and Dungeons and Dragons. In October 1990, he and his wife moved to his parents' home in Spring Hill, Florida, where they had planned to start a new life with their children. Neighbors described Mr. Caprat as a violent man they once seen in the yard with his girlfriend. Quote, he pushed her and her purse went flying. Then he grabbed her and put her over his shoulder and hauled her back into the house screaming, said neighbor Barbara Templeton. After that, we all started referring to him as the Neanderthal, end quote. He was in drug rehabilitation programs and his parents spent their life savings on his rehab.
0: So back to Mr. Lee Bouguet's murder case. Before being put on trial, investigators attempted to link Caprat with an unrelated arson attack on another man committed the day after Lee Bouguet's murder, but could not charge him due to a lack of evidence. At the trial itself, it was determined that Caprat's confession was not overtly reliable and he was thus convicted on the forgery charge and dealing in stolen property only, not the murder charge. He was then placed under house arrest at his parents' home in Hernando County, but was later arrested for violating it and was imprisoned until May 7, 1993. By that time, his wife had divorced him due to his aggressive behavior towards their children and his volatile temper, which she believed was a projection of his own alleged physical abuse as a child, and he had dropped out of the Hillsborough Community College. After his release, Kaprat wrote a letter to his attorney in New Jersey alleging that his eldest son had attempted to kill his younger brother and had sexually molested his mother, but these allegations could not be substantiated. Also after his release, Kaprat started work as a machinist at the Paget Swan Machinery Company, which allowed him to commute between Hudson and Spring Hill, Florida.
1: Later in 1993, on August 7th, a fire broke out at the Spring Hill home of 80-year-old Sophia Francis Garrity. Miss Garrity lived alone and was a public relations employee from New Jersey who retired to Florida. She was known as the Cookie Lady and well-liked by everyone. By the time the firemen had arrived to extinguish the fire, she had already died. The incident came back as a shock to the community. The starting point of the fire was determined to be... Cause of an electrical malfunction in Miss Garrity's room. With the fire being spread by her bedroom fan due to circumstances, it was ruled as accidental, and Miss Garrity's death was also ruled as such. A few houses down, they interviewed Edwin Michael Caprat III, a 29 year old machinist who said he just moved in with his sister. Little did they know he was going to be a lot more important to their investigation than they could have imagined.
0: Ten days later, an elderly couple consisting of 84-year-old William Bill Whitney and his 83-year-old spouse, Alice, were found beaten at their home in Spring Hill after a neighbor had heard Bill screaming. The couple's smoke detector had also gone off. Upon arriving at the scene, firefighters took care of a fire that had been set in the home. The fire was put out before it could spread too much. The Whitney's were transported to Bayfront Health St. Petersburg, but... As Bill had been severely injured and Alice suffered from Alzheimer's disease, they were unable to provide any useful testimony that could identify their assailant. This was further complicated by the apparent lack of a weapon or motive, which left the authorities at a standstill.
1: The day after, another fire was reported in a nearby community of Brookridge, which resulted in the death of 70-year-old Ruth Goldsmith, a retiree who had moved to the area from Havertown, Pennsylvania just two years prior. The fire caused an estimated $65,000 in damages, completely destroying the mobile home in the process. An investigation into the matter determined that the cause was likely an electrical short in the master bedroom, and the cause was subsequently dismissed as accidental.
0: In the weeks following Miss Goldsmith's death, a number of elderly women living in the area began receiving harassing phone calls from what was thought to be the same caller. On September 2nd, yet another fire erupted in Brookridge, this time at a mobile home of 79-year-old Lydia Rydell, a retired food store manager from Media, Pennsylvania, and a friend of Miss Goldsmith's. Upon investigating the home, police found her charred body inside, which had been bound with duct tape and showed signs of sexual assault. Due to this, Miss Rydell's death was labeled a homicide and due to the suspicious frequency of violent crimes in the area, authorities announced that they would be reviewing Miss Goldsmith's case to see whether it was related to this incident or not.
1: The final incident occurred on September 26th when 87-year-old Lorraine Alice Burnham-Daw, a retired athlete, was found beaten to death at her mobile home in Spring Hill. Authorities determined that she had been sexually assaulted and killed after her assailant had repeatedly stomped on her neck. Due to the fact that she had been buried under a stack of bedspread and pillows and they were set on fire, it was determined that her killer likely attempted to burn the home down, but the fire had failed to spread. With the announcement of yet another death of an elderly woman in the area, the FBI was called in to help the investigators as suspicions began to arise that there was a serial killer in the area. Due to this, local residents started reinforcing their door locks and arming themselves just in case they were the next potential targets.
0: Three days after Ms. Dawes' death, an anonymous woman called the Hernando County Sheriff's Office and whispered that the person committing the Spring Hill homicides is Edwin Caprat, the third. The anonymous caller was later identified as Janice Daniels, who was a friend of Caprat's parents and said she knew Caprat did work for the victims. The following day, forensic experts identified fingerprints found on Miss Da's garage, which belonged to Caprat. However, as they had insufficient evidence for an arrest, Caprat was instead put under 24 hours extensive high-tech surveillance, which included the installation of electronic tracking devices on his and his father’s cars. To do so an undercover officer was dispatched to give him a lift to his parents' house and during the trip Caprat complained that his girlfriend was furious at him for having a strange bite mark on his neck. On October 3rd, authorities recorded a conversation between Miss Daw's neighbor Marie Van Nieuwenhuys and Caprat's father who mentioned that he has done work for all the victims and that his son often helps him on jobs. In the following days, Miss Daw's banker came forward and told authorities that Miss Dahl was concerned that Caprat sometimes comes to her house and asked to use the telephone. Also, investigator Scott Beerweiler asked Miss Garrity's daughter about Caprat. She said she knew him and that he dated Miss Garrity's granddaughter in late 1992 until the young woman died of cancer. Checking further into the victim's pasts, investigators find more links to Caprat his father constructed a for-sale sign outside of Whitney's homes and also remodeled the kitchen of Miss Rydell. Caprat's mother, Ruth, sold a mobile home to Ms. Goldsmith. By October 8th, an arrest warrant was issued for him, as well as search warrants for his place of residence, car, and samples of his pubic hair. Caprat was arrested near his parents' home that very same day, and on the following morning, he confessed to the crimes. In his testimony concerning Miss Dawes' murder, Kaprat claimed that he thought she was having a heart attack after the rape and he had stomped on her to, quote, put her out of her misery. As a result, he was charged with four counts of murder, two counts of attempted murder, four counts of sexual battery, six counts of residential burglary involving battery, five counts of arson, and one count of robbery. The news of his arrest sparked renewed interest in Mr. Bouguet's murder, as authorities now believed that Caprat would be willing to properly confess to it. Stacks of documents in this case were released to the news media, revealing a case so thorough and exhaustive that it seems nearly every man in Spring Hill was at some point considered a suspect. Residents called the Hernando County Sheriff's Office by the thousands to report suspicious events, strange people, and wild hunches. One man was investigated after he told a stranger that if he were the killer, he would dump the bodies in a swamp rather than try to burn them. A kitchen worker found himself facing a pair of stern-faced deputies after he stabbed a suit bag and joked to his co-worker that he was the Spring Hill Killer. As some deputies worked furiously to find the serial killer, others sat patiently at crime scenes, jotting down license plate numbers of everyone who drove past. They videotaped mourners at the victims' funerals and checked out everyone who signed a register at one memorial service. Despite all the leads, however, one name kept coming up, Edwin Caprat III. On November 19th, William Whitney, who had been left in a vegetative state following the attack, died at his son's home in Hancock County, Mississippi, from a bout of pneumonia. As his death was thought to be directly linked to the attack committed by Caprat, prosecutors considered charging him with first-degree murder in the case.
1: Although he initially confessed to killing four women and severely beating an elderly couple, Caprat pled not guilty to the 18 felony charges. In January 1995, Caprat's trial for the murder of Miss Riddell began. From the beginning, it was closely monitored by residents in Hernando County due to its high-profile nature and the viciousness of the crimes, which were described as the worst in the county's history. Court officials placed special restrictions on journalists and the public. The restrictions addressed everything from when and where reporters can conduct interviews to when people can walk in the courtroom to how many still cameras are allowed in the courtroom for the trial. But some legal experts and media attorneys questioned whether the court is overreacting to more recent and dramatic press frenzies, most notably surrounding the O.J. Simpson case. After being ruled sober and sane at the time of the crimes Caprat was charged with first-degree murder. During the proceedings a tape recorded interview between Caprat and a detective was played which showed that Caprat had repeatedly asked for the interview to be stopped so that he could smoke a cigarette. In it the detective repeatedly shouted at him and called him a liar which Caprat's attorney argued was tantamount to coercion. On the other hand, prosecutors excused it by pointing out that the detective was simply calling him out on his lies. After a 10-day trial, Caprat was found guilty for the murder February 28, 1995, after the jury deliberated for eight hours. They subsequently recommended a death sentence, and after the trial ended, Caprat was ordered to stand trial for the murder of Ms. Daw. Not long after, he was additionally convicted of her murder as well with the jury in that case also recommending the death sentence. Throughout both proceedings, Caprat expressed no interest in the proceedings and reportedly spent most of the time reading a book. His family members unsuccessfully pleaded with the jurors to spare him the second death sentence, saying that Caprat had told detectives that he would like them to shoot him and that he had slashed one of his wrists on the eve of his first trial. His father described demons his son faced, After falling into a life of drugs and alcohol, while in counseling and in drug rehab centers, Kaprat saw snakes coming out of the walls, his father said.
0: On April 19, 1995, Kaprat and another inmate, Charles Street, were both shanked to death by two inmates at the Florida State Prison's death row while entering the small recreation yard with 20 other death row inmates. Charles Street, who lived in Boynton Beach, was convicted in 1990 of murdering Metro-Dade officers Richard Bowles of North Lauderdale and David Strauskowski of Hollywood, only 10 days after he was released from prison. Public outrage over the murders grew to a cry for reform when it was learned that Street had been released after serving only 8 years of a 15-year sentence for attempted murder. The killings led to changes in the way inmates are granted good time or credit for time served. And eventually to new prison construction designed to relieve the crowding that led to his early release. So basically, he was already in on an attempted murder charge. And because of overcrowding, he was released early by seven years. And once he was released, 10 days later, he shot and murdered two police officers, which landed him on death row, which is how he then met... Mr. Caprat. So here's the facts of the Street case. Just really quickly, I want to review them. So on November 28, 1988, Street and the two officers crossed paths at 2.20 a.m. near the Lone Pine Trailer Park. Officers Bowles and Stralskowski arrived in separate cruisers. They were responding to a report that a man was screaming along the railroad tracks near the trailer park. An hour earlier, an emergency medical service unit also had responded to Street's screams, but he had refused treatment and walked away. As the officers approached Street, who was six feet tall and weighed nearly 300 pounds, Officer Bowles drew his weapon. It was thought that Street disarmed him and fatally shot him in the head. He then turned his gun to Officer Stralskowski and shot him in the head, too. Both officers were wearing bulletproof vests. After shooting the officers, Street jumped into one of the police cruisers and took off. He later told police he had been trying to get back to Boynton Beach to visit a girlfriend. A retiree who witnessed the shooting from his trailer said he heard Street utter something strange as he jumped into the cruiser. Quote, I have my lift, the retiree quoted Street as saying gleefully, As he headed to Broward County with the cruiser's emergency lights on, Street suddenly stopped, jumped out of the cruiser, and stole a woman's car. Police were now in pursuit. Within the hour, Street, still headed north, was captured in Dania. Caprat and Street's death were met with relief from the victim's family members, most of whom said that he deserved what he got. But at the same time, Caprat's victim's family members expressed their condolences to the Caprat family. As a result of his death, the charges in the remaining cases were dropped, and they were officially closed. The two inmates responsible for the murders, Mario Lara and Rigoberto Sanchez Velasco, were both convicted of two counts of third-degree murder. Sanchez Velasco was executed for his respective crime in 2002, while Lara remains in prison on a... Related life term for a double murder, three counts of sexual battery, one with the use of a deadly weapon, robbery with use of a deadly weapon, and the Caprat and Street Murders. This week's article
1: is titled, Suspect Confesses He Had an Urge, Investigators Say. This article was written by James Martinez with the AP News dated October 9th, 1993. Weeks of terror in this retirement haven ended with the arrest of a handyman who investigators said confessed to raping and killing four elderly widows because, quote, he had an urge. Police said Edwin Bernard Caprat III, a 29-year-old machinist, detailed how he met the victims by doing odd jobs, returned to kill them, and tried to destroy the evidence by torturing their homes. News of Caprat's arrest Friday revealed residents of the quiet community 60 miles northwest of Tampa. Many had installed alarms and purchased handguns, fearing that the serial killer was on the loose. Quote, it's wonderful, said a 74-year-old Martha Cunningham, who had put double locks on her doors. This was the first time here I had been truly afraid to be alone, End quote. I wasn't sleeping at night, said Stella Hernam, 69. Maybe now I can rest easier. The victims, who ranged from 72 to 87, were found in their burned homes in August and September. They all lived alone and were attacked in the middle of the night, authorities said. Quote, all he said was he had an urge, said Hernando County Sheriff Maj J.Z. Smith. He said something would just come over him. He had to go do it. There was a need he had. He had to fulfill this need, end quote. Deputies had followed Caprat since receiving a tip September 29th. They linked him to a fingerprint on a garage door of the last victim, 87-year-old Lorraine Daw, whose home was the only one not destroyed by the fire. Caprat, who worked at a machine shop in Tampa, often came to Hernando County to help his father's business doing odd jobs and carpentry work. In the slaying of Daw, Caprat told investigators he was sexually assaulting the woman when he thought she was having a heart attack. Quote, he said he stomped on her neck and broke her neck to put her out of her misery. Sergeant Frank Beerweiler said the other victims were Sophia Garrity, 80, Ruth Goldsmith, 72, and Lydia Riddell, 79. Caprat was being held without bond on four counts of murder, two counts of attempted murder, five counts of arson, and four counts of sexual battery, among other charges.
0: I feel like that article paints a really good picture of what the community was feeling, like the panic and terror and everything that was going on at that time in the community and like a sense of relief almost of like, okay, they got him. Hopefully this is him and we can go back to living our normal lives of enjoying retirement in paradise.
1: Yeah, for sure. No, people were terrified and rightfully so. I mean, they're elderly and now they have to worry about a serial killer on the loose. Like, that's insane.
0: Yeah, I agree completely. I just think it's crazy, but, and it's sad, but this article that you just read, I just feel like paints a really good. Image and kind of gives our listeners and everybody, like us researching the case and everything, like a a picture of what the community was feeling like and the public was feeling like at this time.
1: Yeah, most definitely.
0: So that article did a good job of expressing how the public was feeling and kind of giving us a picture of what the community was feeling at the time. But just to review what Caprat was feeling at the time during his interrogation and stuff. I mean, he did his full confession. Then he told the detectives that he was sick and wanted to, quote, fry like Ted Bundy. So to me, that really feels like he was wanting to get caught. And the fact that he was Doing things more and more sloppy. So, for example, he would set the fire and the whole purpose of the fire was to destroy evidence. But those fires started not destroying evidence. I mean, they barely even destroyed anything, you know, bodies were left. I mean, he left two victims still alive in their home at the time. Obviously, they ended up dying later. But, you know, and then he was torching fires, but almost barely. You know what I mean? It was almost like he wanted to get caught. And then the fact that he said that to investigators just kind of solidifies that for me of where his mindset was at, you know?
1: Yeah, it's like he had zero remorse. Like he did what he wanted to do and then he got caught and then he's like, all right, well, I'm out. I'm good. Thanks. It was fun.
0: Yeah. And then he was like reading a book during trial and yeah, for sure. He was ready to go. So, I guess my main question
1: is, why did he plead not guilty when he confessed to the murders during the investigation? Like, was that a play? Or, like, what was the reason for that? Well, I'll plead guilty and spare you a trial if you take death penalty
0: off the table. But he's like, yeah, I don't care. Fry me. Like, (laughs) But you know what? I don't... It might have been to obtain the death penalty. Like, have you ever heard anybody ever agreeing to get a death penalty off of a plea agreement without being convicted by like a judge and jury. I mean, have you ever heard of that? I don't, I don't know for sure, but I don't think you can. I'm pretty sure that you would have to be convicted by a judge and jury. I mean, I've heard of people taking plea agreements and getting life in prison or something, but I've never heard of anybody ever, taking a plea agreement and getting the death penalty i mean i guess i just never thought about it
1: i don't know that's a good question
0: well his father was trying to plead to the jury to not kill him by claiming you know that he was mentally ill due to the drugs and alcohol but he was determined to be fit to stand trial so he didn't really have a mental illness To so to speak, but he did struggle with addiction, but that doesn't equate to him not being responsible for his actions or willing to be able to stand trial. So, yeah, I don't know. It was just a weird thought that crossed my mind like, if you don't want to be there, why did you plead not guilty? But now I'm thinking that there must have been that ulterior motive of, you know, hoping to get the death penalty. Okay, Casey, another cool thing that I found that was just like a tad bit of information that I thought was interesting that I wanted to tell you about. So Janice Daniels, remember, this was the woman who was the anonymous tipster for Edwin Kaprat III initially. Um, She was actually a family friend of the Kaprats for like a decade, like I'm talking a long time, and she didn't want to turn him in because she didn't want to ruin their friendship But she said that she couldn't eat or sleep for a couple days after, you know, the connection had clicked in her head after the last murder. And so she just had this feeling that he was involved. So she placed the anonymous call. And once she told the authorities, she attempted to reach out to the Caprats and tried to, like, maintain their friendship and check in on them and stuff. But they did not want to speak to her. So... I don't know if the friendship ever repaired, but I do know that she said that, you know, making the decision that she made, she has no regrets or remorse that she would make the same decision again. And she feels that she did make the right decision. And that may have been a really difficult decision for her to make, but I'm glad she made the decision that she did make. I mean, they were already kind of making ties to him as it was but to get somebody that close to the family to come forward i think was really brave and very helpful to the investigation i mean you may lose a friendship but you're saving the community you know
1: i mean i get why you think it would be hard but like that's a friend you know like what's a friend we're talking about another person's life and multiple people's lives you know what i mean so i don't think it was really that hard of a decision
0: Yeah, I mean, okay, so I agree with you in that, like, if I were in her shoes, I would feel that way of like, well, this is an easy decision to make, you know, it's you're saving the community, of course, you have to make that decision, unfortunately, but I do see where that's rough, because not only had they been friends for a very long time, I mean, they were very close friends, to the point, I mean, obviously, they were having conversations about this, like, she just felt like, For her, that was a really tough decision to make. But like I said, I'm glad she made the decision that she did.
1: Yeah, I just, I mean, I get it kind of,
0: but it's like... (laughs) I mean, I just think like, even if it was like a family member or something, like, you have to do that, right? Like, I almost feel like if you don't, now you're a part of the problem, even though you didn't commit any of the crimes. So, yeah, I... I can see how that may be a tough decision to make, but that's definitely the right decision is to make that call. I mean, you're talking about people's lives, like you said.
1: I don't know. You don't want to be next, though. And if you're hanging out with a serial killer, like, that's a possibility. So.
0: (laughs) Right, right. And I mean, he's clearly choosing people in his community that are right around him. Right, exactly. So you never know. I mean, yeah, you never know. It's just horrible. Okay, so moving on into our discussion questions, I'm really interested in hearing both yours and our listeners' thoughts on this case. So, number one, would he have continued tormenting this retirement community had he not been stopped?
1: Yeah, I think absolutely he would have continued because, like he was saying, he had an urge, so those urges don't just stop. Like, he's going to keep going, and he's going to keep having those urges, and he's going to keep killing people and sexually assaulting them, which is so beyond disgusting. But I think that he would not have stopped at all, and the only way to stop him was to capture him, which thankfully they did.
0: Yeah, I mean, and about those urges, so if that truly is what's triggering him to go out and terrorize a community and do horrendous things to the elderly population... And he doesn't even trust himself. Yeah, boy, bye. I definitely don't trust him either. You know, if if you don't trust yourself, I don't trust you. So with that in mind, I'm glad he was never given an opportunity at parole or hurting anybody else. Because, I mean, after all, his death did happen, like, only months after being put in prison and convicted. So he didn't get to necessarily experience the full effects of prison and feel, you know, a lot of things that you'll hear death row inmates explain nowadays. But I can kind of appreciate the fact that he was shanked because ultimately that's kind of what needed to happen to this piece of shit. Who took advantage of the vulnerable elderly community at like 200 pounds in his late 20s. I mean, nobody was going to stop him. Nobody was able to stand up to him without, you know, a sense of defense, like a weapon or something like that. And they were letting him in to use the telephone. Like, why did they think that they needed one? You know what I mean? Like, it's just terrible. So ultimately, I agree that this would have continued. It probably would have gotten a lot sloppier, but because those urges obviously weren't going away, I mean, it probably wouldn't have stopped and may have even escalated. He was already going like every day victimizing somebody. So who knows? It may have escalated to even more than once a day. I mean, you never know. It just could have gotten a whole lot worse. So needless to say, I'm glad he was stopped when he was, but I wish it was sooner, obviously.
1: Right. Right. So I'm, I'm glad. I mean, I don't want to sit here and say one life is more valuable than another, but if you're going to sit there and sexually assault elder women, like,
0: yeah, prison justice, here it comes. Right. And I try really hard to be open-minded and not wish death on people and, you know, try to see the good in people. But I'm also not mad that this situation kind of resolved itself
1: right and i mean like respectfully like what is the state gonna do to them like they're already on death row so the fact that they took out somebody that murders and preys on and sexually assaults like elder people like they're not gonna do anything (laughs) like they're probably like thanks eye for an eye i guess again i'm just glad that He's been taken care of.
0: Right. I mean, the state didn't even have to decide, like, when should we execute him? And uh, let's go through all these appeals that are automatic and all of that. Like, all of the formality was taken out. It was just done. Not sorry. <laughs> okay, let's move on to discussion question number two. What is the psychological reason he was attracted to? To targeting the elderly community. He's a punk.
1: Literally preys on like you what you know those old bullying like videos where like the <laughs> the big bully kid picks on the little scrawny wimpy kid? That's exactly this situation. And we learned about this in grade school, and I don't understand.
0: <laughs> like yeah it's not okay then it's still not okay now
1: exactly like but they're defenseless like you said they're they're older they're women it's in the middle of the night when they're sleeping like every possible like vulnerable avenue that could have been taken was taken to make them as vulnerable as possible they aren't gonna fight back And he can satisfy his urges like it's just
0: gross. It's like those people that are like caretakers or nurses or something, and they take advantage of the elderly community, you know, like whether that's financially or they're abusive or something like that. It's just a crime of opportunity. But it's the same type of situation where they're not able to protect themselves and thus they're more vulnerable yet as the criminal you somehow are able to go to sleep at night and be okay with yourself i don't understand that
1: right right and like like you were saying they they live in a community together so that they're safe together like and then he comes in as a so-called handyman and like completely just takes advantage of that. And it's just so gross. So unfortunate. And I just, it just really irks me a special kind of way. Like I'm like, you know how they always say, oh, respect your elders. This is the most disrespectful shit you could possibly do. <laughs> it just drives me crazy.
0: <laughs> yes, agreed. Okay, well, here's some of the thoughts that I have on it. So I really think that that he was attracted to targeting the elderly community for one of two things. It was either opportunity or it was stemming from his childhood somehow. And that would be like a trauma that we're unaware of something like completely (laughs) that is out of left field as far as we know. But if we knew, then maybe it would answer some of these questions. But ultimately we have to look at the facts of this so his wife was his age as well as his first victim being only slightly older than him and he was a male so it seems to me like he murdered the man and somehow liked it or got off on it or whatever then he continued adding in additional crimes as he went so arson sexual assault beatings etc and So basically the way that I'm seeing that is he's taking advantage of mostly single elderly women because they're more vulnerable and he's a fucking piece of shit and would lose a fist fight with Hey Arnold. But beyond that, I just think he really escalated, you know? So he killed a man and that was it. For the most part, I mean, he robbed him, but the way that he killed him was beating him. But then once he gets to the elderly women, he is more about like arson and sexual assault and including in like the beatings, like stomping on Miss Dawes and all of that. So to me, it, it really feels more like a opportunity is where he chose his victims, So since he already had an inn because of his father's business and it was in his own neighborhood, he was able to just choose those people. So now let's say he lived in a community that was just regular families, you know, that's not necessarily like a retirement community or anything, you know, just like there's younger adults and families and maybe some elderly people there and you know just a whole mix like of people in in a community i'm confident that he still would have carried out these acts and that he would have just chosen any victim that was available to him at that time whether that be young teens or maybe elderly people or maybe you know a single woman living in a home by herself or any of those things. I mean, I don't foresee him taking on like a giant man because he is like you said, a fucking punk, but I just think that uh, this was definitely a crime of opportunity. And unfortunately he lived in the community that he did with the elderly, which are, you know, just a community that's going to make it a lot easier for him to carry out these acts of violence.
1: Oh, yeah, those are really good points.
0: Okay, and my third and final question to you on this case today, Casey, is nature or nurture?
1: I think this one is a nurture case because of the fact that I don't want to say that he had like a bad home life. I think that him starting to drink alcohol at a very young age kind of um, affected his Brain development probably is what I'm thinking. I mean, and then he just internally dealt with that in all the wrong ways. And um, he was then put into juvie and like in and out of rehab and stuff like that. And I think that that nurtured him to grow into this like monstrous person because of his personal development and
0: things of that nature. Okay, I'm going to start with agreeing with you that it is nurture. However, I do think we have to bring up some naturing points. So remember when he got out of prison the first time for violating his house arrest? He contacted his attorney in New Jersey and said that his son had attempted to murder and sexually assault their family members. Also, his first wife, Nora, had said that, you know, she divorced him because of what he was doing to their children. But also, he said that that stemmed and related back to the trauma that he had experienced and abuse from his childhood. But again, none of these things have been substantiated. So I do want to put them out there. Because if it's very real to him, regardless if it's actually reality, if it's his reality, then it could be related. But just because of the fact that it's not substantiating, we don't have hard evidence that any of those things happened. And we don't know that it was passed down. You know, these crazy traits were passed down to his children or that, you know, his prior family, like ancestry, had any of these violent genes in their body, you know? So I just think that without that information, and we can't say for sure, I would say that I'm definitely comfortable saying nurture. But if more of that information came to light, I think I could easily be persuaded to nature. Also, I do want to note that I feel that the life of crime was kind of inevitable. I mean, I don't know that we could have necessarily predicted murder specifically, but I mean based on his behaviors in the classroom when he was younger and all the things that he kind of went through and the behaviors that he had. I mean, they said he was well-liked, but that everybody knew what his personality was, you know, and and the struggles that he had. And then you throw on addiction on top of all of that. I mean, I just feel like the life of crime was inevitable and there was really no way of avoiding it for him based on kind of how he was going in a downward spiral at that time. But I i mean, it sucks that it escalated to murder, basically. There just was no chance that he was going to be living a pro-social life. He tried, you know, he married, he had kids, he had a job, you know, and still he decided to hurt people. And that's the urges that he had, supposedly, that just couldn't be controlled. So, I mean, there was there was never going to be a chance, you know. And there was some information about that, you know, people had claimed that he had robbed them and stuff like that that we don't know because he didn't get any convictions or anything like that for those things. But, I mean, he was always kind of, you know, pushing his limits and pushing the boundaries. So, he would have never lived a pro-social life regardless. I'm honestly surprised he made it to almost 30 Yeah, I definitely see what you're saying there. He also had the mentality of wanting to die. I mean, he felt that he had nothing to live for, not even his children or his family that was fighting for him. He didn't have any remorse, no... Sense of sympathy or empathy for the victims' families, or even his own. I mean, he never once apologized to anybody. He was just ruthless. I mean, we hear all the time how people go to prison and they are rehabilitated or reformed, which is, you know, I guess what the ultimate goal of that would be get them out of society and teach them a lesson, you know, kind of put them in a timeout. And so people will find, you know, like a God to worship or something to live for, you know, they get sober and realize like, Oh, you know, I, I love my family. I don't want to be here. Uh, you know, and they kind of learn their ways, but he just had no remorse. He didn't care. And he, there was nothing that was going to change his mind, not even his children, not any kind of God, not any amount of consequence. He was ready to go. And I mean, like he wanted to be dead. <laughs> I mean, he, that's why I say, before that he wanted to get caught and wasn't trying to be very careful about it necessarily. I mean there was even neighbors that were reporting that I read in news articles and stuff saying that they watched him stand there as they were putting out the fire to the very first elderly victims home that was just a couple of houses down from him. He just stood in his doorway watching and I mean, just there's horrible things that you read about him that really paints a picture of somebody who just straight up doesn't give a shit and has zero feelings towards anybody, even towards himself. Like he didn't try to save himself, you know? So I just I agree with you on this one is what I'm going to get to (laughs) nurture.
1: I completely agree.
0: Okay, addicts, so we will post these discussion questions on our Facebook page. So head to Facebook, scroll down, you'll see our Amazon link, keep scrolling, you'll see the discussion questions for episode number 32, and just comment your answers. So discussion question number one is, would he have continued tormenting this retirement community had he not been stopped? Number two is what is the psychological reason he was attracted to targeting the elderly community? And number three is nature or nurture. We'll post a picture of him on our social media and our website. So head over, check out his picture. Okay, Casey, I got to tell you, I have to describe this one to you. So, you know, Adam Devine, he is in Workaholics and also Pitch Perfect and a bunch of other things. So Edwin Caprat almost looks like him, but in the era of the TV show Cheers. So if you haven't seen the TV show Cheers, first of all, you may not be old enough to even be listening to this podcast, but definitely go check it out and, and see exactly. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Like If you dressed Adam Devine up to fit right in with the late 80s, early 90s, this is exactly what Edwin Caprat looks like. It's hilarious. And with that, we will wrap up this week's episode on the granny killer, who is some random version, and I'm convinced, doppelganger of Adam Divine. Come back next week, addicts, for another CA meeting. And until then, stay alive, stay alert, and stay caffeinated.